Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. So we are in the middle of a series called Voices Other Than Our Own, where we each have been picking out theologians and religious leaders who are not from our tradition, so not Methodist, not Lutheran, and um, exploring what their work and lives have meant for our own faith journeys. Uh, so where are we, or who are we going to learn about today, Steve? Uh, well, I wanted to uh, explore at least a little bit of an introduction to a writer um, I've gotten uh, a little more familiar with uh, in the last year or so, uh, but who's been uh, around and a prolific writer for, for, for decades. Um, she, her, her pen name is Bell Hooks. Her, her, uh, she was uh, born Gloria Jean Watkins um, and took as a pen name Bell Hooks, all in lowercase, um, as a... Uh, a nod to her maternal great-grandmother who was named uh, Bell Bailey Hooks or something like that. Uh, so it's sort of a nod to her uh, great-grandmother. Uh, she was born in the early 1950s in a small town in Kentucky. Um, and uh, since then, as as had a career as a, a scholar and a writer, um, I guess most most people who are familiar with her not entering this from a theology kind of angle uh, are probably familiar with her writings about like the intersection of uh, race and gender. She's she's one of those writers who like early on talks uh, what, what what now might be called intersectionality that like there are ways that. Um, uh, race plays a role in how you see the world in our culture and also gender does. And so um, she is a, 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 a voice pro- probably earlier than it was fashionable or cool to say it um, that, that um, would have said that uh, in particular, uh, black women and women of color have a unique voice, maybe that's different than the perspective that um, maybe uh, only white women who've only experienced what it's like to be treated differently based on being female, um, and that um, uh, Black women also have a a, a unique perspective because of their, uh, I mean, racial, gender, all those, and that that there's there's a bunch of ways that that where we come from in life shape the way we see the world. That's that's one piece of what uh, she's well known for. Um, She's also one of those voices, uh, like, like, Many would be now, I think, who would use the 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 title or the 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 category feminist uh, of themselves to say that um, fem- feminism is uh, for everybody. That that's a, a frequent tagline of hers. That like to be a, a feminist is basically for men or women or anybody to say that everybody should be treated equally, rather than. Um, forcing them to fit in in particular stereotypical roles or or assumptions or things like that so that's sort of maybe what the 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 wider secular world might know her for or be familiar with i um have been most intrigued by a trilogy she wrote in the i want to say early 2000s at least starting um that are uh exploring the notion of love um and there are ways that delves into the explicitly spiritual or theological and ways that it's it uh, her conversation looks at uh, human relationships as well, just, you know, whether romantic or friend or community or whatever. But um, uh, an entry point that I'll, I'll sort of use for, for my purposes for introducing us today is her book, All About Love, New Visions. It's the first of her, um, what became a trilogy about um, 
the, the, the notion of the ways we practice uh, love with one another. And one of the things that I found interesting for her is she's somebody who um, clearly had a background growing up within Christianity. Uh, there, there are ways in her writings, she's certainly got a familiarity with what it would have been like to grow up as a uh, young black girl and black woman in small town Kentucky. So there's, there's black church sort of lingo in, in the way she writes sometimes. Uh, as her own spiritual life uh, progressed, she uh, has had times where she has like experimented or explored uh, Buddhism. So in that ways reminds me a little bit of our, our sort of glancing conversation about Thomas Merton last time around with Henri Nouwen um, and has uh, had times where she's uh, been immersed or at least explored um, uh, Sufi mysticism, which is sort of the, the mystical branch in, in uh, Islam. Um, and her writing also reveals uh, at least a familiarity with uh, the kind of like vague spirituality that might be called like the line between self-help and new age and sort of modern psychology with those all kind of blur at some point. One of the things I found helpful or interesting for, for, for um, reading her is, is, Number one, she, she, she's somebody who knows the language and the, the, the background of the way the church talks about love. And so it's not like this is foreign to her, but she also knows what it's like to be let down by institutional Christianity. Um, and for me, then, as someone whose um, personal theology and professional life are very much um, attached to the the. Uh, institution that is organized or not always very organized religion. Um, it seems important to me always to listen to those voices of folks who've grown up with it and have felt like something was missing or something um, had been so badly damaged in that, that they felt like they, they couldn't be exactly a part of it. So like, I, 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 um, find myself when I read bell hooks, like I'm excited when she'll quote a Bible verse and go, see, see, look, she likes the Bible. Um, and then I'll also be like, okay. So she sees like the beauty of uh, first John, perfect love casts out fear, or we'll quote a, a passage of Henri Nouwen or, or Thomas Merton in her writings. Um, and then she'll also have this way of talking about how very often organized Christianity, maybe especially 20th century American Christianity um, has sort of sometimes done a bait and switch where we'll talk in one breath about the importance of love and treating and honoring everybody and truth telling and justice. And then in the next breath, we'll move to, and what that means is women, you need to do these things and men, you need to do these things. You need to fit these sort of cookie cutter rules. And she's one of those voices who's like, wait a second here. I think you've, you know, done, done a bait and switch here. That may, maybe, maybe um, you, you've, you've lost something or, or confused a particular cultural assumption about how the world is supposed to be and assume that that's what Christianity is. Well, maybe that's not what it is. Um, and I guess she forces me to, uh, to, to wrestle with that, that bigger theological question of how do any of us who own the traditions we come from, so here I am, a, a, a um, died-in-the-wool Lutheran Christian who is, is like, I, I own that and that, that's essential to who I am, um, how do I also discover that people who don't share my faith, there are going to be some places where they have insights uh, that are helpful to me, even folks who are outside the the traditional boundaries of Christianity. There are there things I can learn from Sufi mystic poets, and yeah, I'm mean, like my goodness. There's beauty in the way a poet like Rumi, uh, the you know the ancient Persian poet, will talk about the love of God um, in ways that I need to at least wrestle. Wow, folks, folks whose faith is very very different from mine 
also came to a deep understanding of the love of God. I can't ignore that because it's inconvenient. Um, what, do I, what do I do with that? Or the, the, the fact that folks from Bell Hooks to Thomas Merton to um, folks I've known personally in life have found that there was um, an, an awful lot of convergence for them between um, the practice of, of Buddhism and their Christianity. So me, ra- rather than just saying, sorry, I can't learn anything from anybody who has anything positive to say about a different religion, how do I discover, oh, th- these voices I don't have to be afraid of, but I can listen to them and discover they may they may help me see blind spots that I uh, would prefer not to acknowledge exist. So she, she's been helpful for me as, as a voice like that. I, I think that that acknowledgement of institutions often fail us is, is something that we all, we all wrestle with. Um, in particular, I'm curious as if whether bell hooks would consider herself a feminist or a womanist. And th- oh, go ahead. Because like her tagline of feminism is for everyone kind of says to me that she might continue to latch on to the identity of feminist. But one of the major failings of the feminist movement is that it did not really leave room for women of color. And at least the problems that are specific to women of color, you know, that um, there, there wasn't room for that intersectionality of Yes, there are issues and problems that women in general face, but then when you start looking at also the problems that like black women face, you know, those are going to be different. And so the womanist movement was born out of feminism, not really leaving room in the movement for women of color. And to me, the fact that there needed to be a womanist movement says something about feminism and how it failed. But now that that movement exists, I think that feminism needs to support the womanist movement. But so so I'm kind of curious if she self-identifies as a feminist or a womanist or both, like, because, like, you can also be both. Yeah, and I... I, it would be interesting to have that conversation or to read more in depth, particularly on how she, she views those categories and those labels. With my limited knowledge of her writing, I would say my guess would be that she uh, she she would support the project of, of womanism as a sort of a separate reality of like exploring how women of color uh, have unique contributions that are not just the same as... Um, uh, white women who who have not experienced the the additional uh challenges of racism or something like that but in the the pieces that i've read of her she she doesn't spend the time talking about dissecting those labels it may well be she's done that elsewhere and i'll just own i've got a limited entry point into her writing and have been most intrigued by or most um focused at least in my in my reading of her at uh where where are the places where uh her her exploration of of what love looks like both human love and love with the divine um what 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 does that look like and and what are the voices that that need to be listened to there but yeah i think if if i if if i got to have a round two conversation on bell hooks or catch up with me in a couple of years where i've read more that that'll probably be something more i'm able to to uh, speak to or or explore more 
one of the things I will also say I found really uh, valuable and helpful about, in particular, in her writing on love, um, and and again, th this is something that she you know was was writing. 20 years ago now that maybe in the last two decades for a lot more people feels um, hopefully more obvious, but uh, 20 years ago to me felt um, radical the first time I was introduced to ideas like these. And I probably first had an exposure, not through bell hooks, but through other people. But the, the notion, number one, that um, we've created this whole fairy tale of that love is first and foremost about romance and that romance is primarily easy and that it's just a matter of when you meet the right person, then everything gets easy in life. And that the goal of life is to get paired off and partnered with one person. Um, Bell Hooks is one in particular in, in her book, All About Love, who uh, spends time looking at like, okay, this thing that we call love is very, 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 very broad. And romance is a piece of it but even there it's not like well the problem is you have to meet the right person and then everything clicks and it's magic and it's easy it's about this very very difficult process of honesty and vulnerability and always looking for um what what how can i listen to the other person and also what what things do i need to say that that and that's a both and for every partner in a relationship and one of the things she takes shots at early on in, in her book uh, all about love um is uh, it, it was it was written right around the time, maybe a little bit after, when that famous uh, kind of self help book, uh, "Men Are From Mars, Winter From Venus," came out. You know, um, and so like she's like, okay, there's some insights that are helpful about you know we've been socialized to see the world or you know to treat people differently or act differently. And yeah, broadly speaking, men are often socialized to act in this way, and women are often socialized to act this way. She's a voice who'd be like, okay, but even though there's differences between how men are trained to act in culture and women are trained to act in culture. That's not necessarily like a core essential. That's, that's not inside. That's how we're trained to be by the wider culture. Not necessarily that that's how all men and women actually are. And I think that that's the, the problem that, that folks read a book like that and said, Oh, we'll see. The problem is men are this way, all of them. And women are this way, all of them, rather than saying, no, those are helpful descriptions of the way, our culture trains people to act. And if we live those scripts out and still find ourselves unhappy, is the problem I didn't live the script well enough? Or is the problem maybe these scripts are kind of made up and maybe um, men don't just need to fix things and destroy things and hunt and gather things. Maybe uh, we can't paint in that kind of broad brushstroke. And maybe women aren't only emotional and never logical. I mean, sometimes that can become crude caricatures of men are this and women are this. And I think one of the helpful critiques that Bell Hooks has offered, even as uncomfortable as it was to help her, to, to, to see her pull the cover back, is how often, honestly, Christianity has kind of been used as a as a prop to sort of reinforce that script and be like, yeah, what it is to be Christian is to assume that women's job is to uh, raise children and they're supposed to be emotional and men are supposed to be the, you know, the, the earners and the, they're the ones who accomplish and build and conquer things. And Christianity is here to reinforce that when I'm not really sure that's in particularly anywhere on, on Jesus radar, something he's particularly interested in. Um, and an awful lot of even say, you know, uh, a, a Paul in Galatians is like, sorry, those, those rules don't have to be defining for us anymore. Even though obviously Christianity has wrestled with, and then at some points codified, no, the job of Christianity is to reinforce men do this and women do this. Um, when that, to me, that's, that feels like that, that's not what the gospel's about. That seems like that's an additional cultural thing that, um, 
has 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 strengths and weaknesses to it, but that ain't that ain't gospel. Um, and so, like bell hooks is that is that helpful voice? I think uh, for me at least of all these assumptions that then got sort of propped up with see our religion says so maybe that's not really what uh love is really about and that love isn't necessarily reducible to you'll be happy if you just find yourself in a romantic relationship i i i say that that's been helpful for me especially because often what what i um have experienced for from life in the church is at some point folks uh, i i think i think um come to their expectation that the church's job is to like make their families work or that sometimes mm-hmm. people like the, okay, the job of the pastor is fix my marriage or like, and again, like sometimes pastors are involved in helping folks through difficult times in relationships or dealing with family stuff, but that that's that, that the voice that pastors can offer is not the same as clinical professional counseling. And that um, the, the role that a pastor can offer is I, at least I, I I don't think anymore. I don't know that I ever did, but I don't think that when um, when families or marriages are going through difficult times, I don't think they primarily need someone to read Bible verses at them. And I think sometimes that's sort of the assumption of pop Christianity um, that when when a marriage is troubled, what somebody needs is they just need to get in church more and listen to more sermons and read more Bible stories. And when they do that, then the women will learn that they're supposed to cook and clean, and the men will learn that they're supposed to conquer and build, and everybody will be happy. And like, no, sometimes the the, the issue is. Um, we're not capable of truth telling with one another, or we're not capable of saying what we actually think, or maybe we're not capable of listening something that's uncomfortable, or we don't bring the assumption that the other person gets an equal vote <laughs> uh, in how a family makes decisions. And that's not just a matter of you need to read more Bible verses. That's like we we need to like deconstruct the assumptions we bring about um, how how every relationship uses power, I guess. I read an article recently and it was one of those, it was shared on Facebook and I scrolled through the article right before bed. So I wish I'd read it more in depthly now, but the, the gist of the article was that for the past hundred or so years, the American, American religion has seen the Christian church as a place that you go to for advice Yeah, that um, you go to church to find, to, to get an, advice on how to best read the Bible, on how to best pray, on how to best fix your relationship with your family. And that that is perhaps straying from the actual mission of the church, that we shouldn't be a center for advice, Mm -hmm. that instead we should be, you know, the center for glorifying God, proclaiming Christ crucified and risen you know, that, that, and like looking at what Jesus actually wanted us to do, not how to best feel good. And I, and, I love, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what you were getting at with bell hooks and how she, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought, but I no, think sorry. it was something along the lines. <laughs> okay. It's, um, yeah, about looking at the assumptions of what is this institution for? Yeah, and I, I I appreciate the the way whether you or the article you'd read framed it as advice that like even advice is um, 
an appealing way that like a vice is the kind of thing you can feel free to take or not take where, you know, like there was a time in Christian history and there were certainly downsides to the, the hierarchy and the, 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 the downsides of medieval Christianity, but there was a time where the church wasn't advice giver. The church would, we decree, this is what you shall do. And in our modern therapeutic sort of era, it's sort of a, well, I'm going to go to my church or my pastor or my small group leader when I'm having a problem. And then if I like their advice, I'll do it. And if I don't like their advice, I'm free to ignore. And like, so like, while I'm not at all in favor of the church should be decreeing and demanding obedience, um, I think the, the the advice approach feels distinctively American and consumerist of sort of like, well, if I don't have any answers, I'll go and see what my church has to say and I'll try it. And if it doesn't work in like, you know, three easy applications, I'll move on to something else. Um, and again, that feels very much like that's not that's not what what it is to be a disciple of a, of a rabbi. You know, it, it's a, I will live my life the way the rabbis, you know, sketches out. Here's how we live our lives rather than. I tried this and it was helpful or I tried it and I didn't like it or this, this was too hard. I gave up that kind of thing. And that, that whole notion of churches here for advice feels very, I'm free to take it or leave it. And when it gets hard, I will abandon it, which again, fits very much with, I think our culture's approach to how love works. That love is, um, it's the thing that will make my life all feel better. And if, if I'm having a struggle, struggle with it, it must be the relationship is bad or wrong. I found the wrong person who wasn't the one I'll ditch them and find the right, the one. Um, and, it, it feels to me like a, a whole lot of people grew up on fairy tales, often animated fairy tales that were sort of basically that was the story. And it, like for me, this this is one of those notes where it feels like the 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 wider culture um, has been listening to what voices like bell hooks have been saying and, and affected some of our storytelling. When, when when my kids saw the movie Frozen that came out now, oh, my goodness, it's however many years that's been. But the retelling of the you know, the 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 snow queen uh fairy tale you know and in in disney's recent retelling it's not that true love it's you have to find a man and once you find your prince and everything gets better it turns out the love that makes the difference is the the two sisters and their sacrificial love for one another to me that was mind-blowing having grown up on all the disney fairy tale movies of what you need is the right prince to come along and then you know even though you never met him he kissed you when you were passed out but now that was true love um uh, and that that sort of whole deconstructing, maybe love is something more than just you need to find the right romantic person for a moment and you'll know them by the way they kiss you. Um, but that the the love that might save the world might might be self-sacrificial and uh, sisterly or familial or community wide and is not about um, just romance. And like th to me, I'm glad that that my kids are growing up in a world where the movies they're seeing doesn't everyone doesn't end with and you're not a success until you find a romantic partner and otherwise you're you know what a, what a miserable life you're living um uh but it feels like th those it took a long time for voices to sort of percolate to like wait a second your, your life is not incomplete just because you have not found a quote-unquote the one and maybe finding the quote-unquote the one isn't what makes life easy and happy it commits you to a different kind of daily challenge and struggle yeah, I would agree that uh, the animated companies such as Disney has really stepped up their game in the last 10 years, you know, since I've stopped watching Disney movies because I was a kid and not a target audience, but now because I'm a parent and also because I still really like Disney movies. But um, like Moana, again, there is no romantic interest. Even in Frozen, there's still, you know, Anna who is trying to find a true love. But Moana, it's like, 
no, I'm too busy. Like that's not even on the horizon. Like that's not the main point. This is definitely, I need to save my people and also the ocean because if the ocean doesn't survive, then the people don't survive. And so I need to save the ocean and the world. And so there isn't even any romantic love, but ultimately I would say it's still a movie about love. It's about her love for her people. It's her love for the world. And also her, I would even say her love of self and who she understands herself to be and not who her parents want her to be. And she still loves her parents. It's not like she gets all mad and, well, she does get mad, but she doesn't get all like angsty about like, oh, my parents don't understand me. It's more like, I know who they want me to be. I understand why they want me to be this way, but that's not who I am. That's not the voice in my head. Like, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. And I think that that understanding of yourself when it goes against everybody else is a type of love. Yeah, yeah. I saw a cartoon the other day uh, that, um, your, your, your insight makes me think of, um, it's a cartoon by, um, David Hayward, Daniel Hayward, um, uh, the, the, the cartoon, the gist of it is this kid going to his father, uh, and like, you know, dad sitting in the, the easy chair, like stereotypical dads do. And the caption is, like so it's 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 the picture is a kid talking to his dad but the caption is all the language we've been taught to pray to god as father and it's sort of a woe is me i'm not even worthy to speak to you i'm a worm i'm a wretch all that kind of thing and you i know i'm not worthy for you to listen to me and it's sort of like the, then the, the the title of all this is like if if we think this would be weird with talking with our actual parents why have we sort of accepted that like the right way to talk to god is um i'm unworthy and i'm nothing and i'm terrible and i'm rotten and i'm a mistake and i'm off like so like sometimes organized church is really good at we're miserable sinners there's nothing else to be said about us but we're miserable sinners um rather than it's possible to be again both at the same time beloved and broken and to have sin that needs to be named and and the truth told about it but also still claimed and beloved um and sometimes our language in organized church life is there's nothing good to say about me um, well, if, if, if that, if we can tell that would not be a good way to run your household with, you know, actual parents and children, why would we want to reinforce that that's how humans relate to God that no, it, it's okay to say, here's something I need, or I need to say this about myself, or I need to own that I'm beloved and I'm worthy because God sees I'm worthy, not just I'm a, I'm a worm and I'm terrible or something like that. That like, you have to be able to say both at the same time, rather than reinforcing only the you're terrible. So I guess I want to thank you both for for listening to um, my sort of stumbling rambling introduction to to bell hooks are there other things as you've just heard me describe this introduction that that are poking questions or or anything else for either of you uh yeah i guess my question is where would you suggest to be a good starting place for reading bell hooks hooks yeah. Well, I, I, th- this, this may just be that this is my entry and therefore it, it seems like an acceptable entry for others. Uh, but honestly, her, her, um, uh, her, her all about love in the beginning of that, that trilogy of books seems like a good place in a sense in that, um, it's a pretty broad place to, to enter. And, um, 
it seems to me like doesn't require a lot of technical knowledge <clears throat> of any other areas or, or pieces of culture. And to me, like I, I was honestly a little bit nervous before wading a little more deeply into her writing being like, uh, am, am I am I going to be able to, to relate to what she has to say? As somebody who comes from a, a different walk of life, who's got several decades of life, you know, um, uh, life experience on me. Um, and I found her writing to be accessible there and non-technical. And it wasn't intimidating. It wasn't like, sorry, if, if, you, if you don't check the same demographic boxes as me, you won't, don't even bother read it. It was, the, you know, everybody knows what it's like to want to be loved and to love and to get better at how to love and to be loved. So for me, that, that made it an easy place to, to begin. Um, and then from there to see what, what trails are, are worth following down after that. That's what I'd say. Okay. Thank you. So I'll thank both of you for uh, being willing to indulge me in this exploration. And uh, we're going to get to have one more conversation uh, with voices other than our own next time here in Crazy Faith Talk. Hope you can join us then. See you all. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.